Hey, I'm pumped to be here. My name's David. If you don't know me, I'm on staff. I'm our teaching pastor. And uh, just as I start today, I just want to ask you a question. How many of you in high school or college had to take some sort of foreign language? This was requirement to graduate. Okay, most of us in this room had to take it. Those of you that didn't, you lucked out or you beat the system somehow. So when I was in high school, I remember I was forced to take uh, Spanish. Sorry, throat's closing up. I was forced to take Spanish, and so I remember being in Spanish class, you know, in the first year or like first couple weeks, you get excited, right? You're like, Spanish, this is, this is going to be fun. I'm going to learn all these words. I'm going to be fluent by the end of the semester, and I'm going to be able to talk and translate, and I could work for the UN. I could move overseas. I could do whatever I want, and then you get like four weeks in, and you're like, this is horrible. This is not fun. What's conjugation mean, and why do I have to know the usted form of correr, and why do I have to know what career means? And I asked this question that maybe you did, and I asked this, am I ever going to use this, right? How many of you afterwards went, I never used that ever? So just a few of us here, this was my mentality too. As I'm going through Spanish, I'm studying this language. I took it for three years. Two years was the required. The third year, I just had no other better option to take. So I took it again. And I remember there's this big dude in class. Um, he was big. He was a football player. And he was, you know, like the, the kind of stereotype of all muscle, no brain. So he kind of, he fit this fit this description. So he was in my class. I remember sitting next to him. His name was Dan and he would move, relocate his desk and place it right next to mine, which meant he was right in the middle of the aisle and he would just, he was mooching basically is what he was. But I didn't care. This was Dan. He was an upperclassman. He was fun to talk to. And so I was learning, but I was learning more as I was teaching, you know? So he'd be like, okay, what's the answer for this one? And I'd go, I honestly, I don't know. I've only done this for as long as you have, but this is your repeat year. So maybe you to be teaching me. So this was the struggle for me, right? Me and Dan were going back and forth. So here's what I found out. Um, after kind of dismissing this and blowing it off and kind of like, I'm never going to use this. What do I need it for? I speak English. What I found out is subsequent years after that, um, I kept finding myself in Central America. I kept finding myself in different countries and in different contexts in which the language that was spoken was Spanish. And so fast forward, here I am, I'm on this trip, I'm on a missions trip, I'm in a very poor part of Mexico, and I'm sitting on top of a roof, I am dying of heat exhaustion. I mean, it's just so hot, we're working so hard, and it's me up there and one other guy on my team, or on our team, and then these two other guys that are around our same age, but they speak only Spanish. And so now it's all coming back, and I'm like kicking myself, like, I should have learned Correr. I should have learned it better. What's the Usted form? How do I be formal? How do I be polite? How do I ask questions? Where is the bathroom? Baño, right? You remember that one. But this is the phrase, those of you that took Spanish, what's the translation for how do you say? Do you remember? Anybody? Como se dice? This was like my clutch. Every other phrase. Como se dice? And then I'd make like runner, you know, like this. He's like, fingers, chopsticks? No, 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 runner. So this was the the struggle, right? I'm on top of this roof trying to relate, trying to communicate, trying to talk. And what I found out is I, in all of these different contexts, I was the one that knew the language the best, which was a huge insult to our team because I knew it horribly. But the struggle of translating or the struggle of trying to communicate with someone that doesn't speak the same language was so difficult yet so rewarding when you could finally reach an understanding. Where we're going today, which I'm really excited about, is we're still in the book of Daniel. We're going through this series called Against the Grain, and we started it last week. So John was up here, John, the campus pastor here, um, started with Daniel 1, and he told the story about how 
in Daniel, uh, there was a kingdom of Israel, which was a real kingdom. It's in the Middle East, still there today. Kingdom of Israel was conquered by another nation known as Babylon. Babylon moves in, conquers it, takes it over, and the king of Babylon, his name was King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Veggie tales, come on, you got to get with it. <laughs> king Nebuchadnezzar, he conquers Babylon, or Babylon conquers Israel. He takes all these young guys, these bright, up-and-coming, smart, good-looking, you know, high-potential leaders, thinkers, uh, politicians, whatever. He brings the best of the best of the Israelites into Babylon, and he, he morphs them into the Babylonian culture. And so they start learning Babylonian religion. They start learning Babylonian agriculture and politics and policies and leadership. And so he absorbs the best of the best so that he can effectively lead the people into this next generation. Well, here's what we find out is as these kids come in, and we talked about this last week, Daniel was different than the rest in that Daniel had a resolve. Do you remember what the resolve was when it came to food? He wouldn't eat the meat. Here he is in the king's table. He's a young kid. He's never had bacon in his life, and it's on a buffet. And all of his friends, right, this was kind of the, this is what distinguished Israel from the rest of the nations, is how they treated meat in relationship or in reverence to God. So they wouldn't eat the meat, but Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their new names, right? Rack, Shack, Benny, VeggieTales, you with me? Good. <laughs> Daniel and his three friends resolved not to defile themselves. That it wasn't about the food, it was about their relationship with God. And so these four men and these four really boys distinguished themselves differently from all of their other friends who were just like them, who had the same background, the same upbringing, and now the same circumstances, being exiles in a country that's not their own. They distinguished themselves because they, they drew a line in the sand and they said, well, our, just because our context changed... Just because the leadership changed, just because our circumstances changed, our faithfulness and relationship to God won't. And so Daniel, among even these four, stuck out among the rest, was highly regarded, was sought after. People in leadership in Babylon, kings, would seek out Daniel and say, Daniel, speak into this situation. Tell us what God is trying to say. So to set up the story then where we're at today, Babylon, now years later, King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer the king. The new king is now King Belshazzar. He's in charge of Babylon, and Babylon is in war with Persia. Persia, Babylon, they're opposing each other. Well, King Belshazzar is not the brightest king in the relationship of these two, and he gets outflanked and outplayed, and so his army retreats into a city in which the other king, the king of Persia, besieges it. Okay, we don't really do this much anymore in our culture, the way we do war. But what they would do is they would set up camp outside of the city, and they would just wait. It was a waiting game. We're going to wait till your provisions run out, until your people lose faith, and they lose heart, and they lose the fight to fight, or the will to fight. We're just going to wait you out. And so that's what happens. Persia besieges the city. Belshazzar gets into the city, locks up the gates, and they're right on a river. The city's right on a river. So they can't cross the river. They can't get into the gates. And get this, they have 20 years of provision inside the city. So King Belshazzar, as he leads the people in the midst of this war and in the midst of being besieged, let's see what he does. Let's jump in. 
Uh, and there's a lot of text today, so just hang with me. But the story is just awesome. So we're in Daniel 5, starting with verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. So here he is. He's in the midst of a, of a crisis. He's in the midst of a war, and he decides to party. Let's keep reading. They drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. This is so important because Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel. And when he conquered Israel, he took the artifacts from the Jewish temple and brought them into his possession and left them there. But what happened with Nebuchadnezzar that Belshazzar would know is Belshazzar was at the height of his reign and God ruined him because of how arrogant he was, because of how selfish he was and self-centered. God brought him to ruin to the point that even the text says he was eating grass and he was covered with the dew of the earth. Okay? He's just like one of the wild animals out of his mind. And when he finally humbles himself and says, God, you are God and you gave me everything that I had, God actually restores him to his position and gives him more influence, more power, more everything than he had before. So Belshazzar knows this, and it says his father, Nebuchadnezzar, he has just seen this, but now see the difference in heart here between Belshazzar, the son, and Nebuchadnezzar, the father. Verse 3, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. They bring these, these precious artifacts. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They got drunk off of them. Think about the, the reverence involved by just taking something so significant, something so important to the Jewish people and using them to drink and to party with. As they drank the wine, they praised, they took it a step further, the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Just notice, and we're, we're just going to track with the heart here, the heart of King Belshazzar and how he treats God. God, these important relics to you, these artifacts, these cups, these, these goblets, whatever they are, they're nothing to me. I don't care. In fact, I'm going to use something that's sacred to you, God, and I'm going to use it to praise other worthless idols like wood and iron. You see, like, the irreverence that's going on here. Let's keep going. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared. That freaks you out, okay? You're in the party. You, you're wondering, was this the wine or am I seeing this, right? This is awkward. This is strange. Something's just being written. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Think about how specific that is. There it is. It's on the plaster near the lampstand so everyone can see it. The king watched the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees we're knocking. He's shaking. He's trembling. He is so afraid right now, as all of us would be. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. He can't read it, and he can't understand it, so he consults the best and brightest people in his kingdom and says, translate this for me. And he says this, he takes it a step further, the reward, and he will be made, the guy who translates this, the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. And I love this last line. And the nobles were baffled. I am so confused right now. Not only did we see this hand that came out and wrote this inscription out of nowhere, just a hand, not a person, not a being, just, just a hand. Not only are we terrified, we have no idea what it means. That's probably, in my opinion, the scarier part. Okay, the hand is one thing, but then not understanding what the hand just did or what it wrote or what it means sends anyone into a terror and into a panic. And I just want to ask this here for, for a second or kind of make this statement. Isn't it true that the world often doesn't understand what God's word says? That often when God speaks, be it through scripture or be it through preaching or be it through God working through the Holy Spirit in your heart, isn't it true that the world often doesn't understand when God speaks? Let's keep reading. Verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles that my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. Verse 15, the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Isn't it true that people in the world who aren't followers of Jesus can't understand the writings of God for the way that he intended them? That it baffles them. Let's keep reading. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. And you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He's like dangling the bait. Go on, check this out, man. You do your job. You do it well. Not only am I going to make you a rich man, I'm going to make you third highest in the kingdom. But Daniel answered the king... Keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards for someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So here's like the big, this is the big build up, the big story. Like what does this saying mean? What does the hand on the wall say? What what does the writing translate to? Because for the rest of them, they don't understand and they're living in confusion and unknown. And so Daniel steps up, right? It's like he steps up to the microphone and he goes, okay, this thing on. You guys ready? Let's read what it says. Verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all of the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is what? Sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone 
he wishes. This is the preface. This is the prologue. Daniel hasn't even translated it yet. He's just starting with, let us not forget your dad. Let us not forget King Nebuchadnezzar and how his pride got in the way of what God was trying to communicate through him and do through him and also say to him. But Daniel's saying, I'm just bracing you for the impact here for what God has to say to you. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. And all of your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Big Bill, right? Tension, man, he nailed it. This is the inscription that was written Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Ooh. The crowd went nuts, right? Everybody freaks out. Same response. Daniel says this. I'm going to translate it for you Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And they're all sitting here dumbfounded, like, this is the guy? It doesn't even mean anything. What's he talking about? What's he alluding? What, What is the translation? So he translates it. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. And notice he says it twice. God has numbered the days of your reign. And brought it to an end. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. This is the craziest line to me in this whole thing. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You're a debtor. You're indebted to a debt that you cannot pay. You owe. And not just you owe someone else. You owe God and have been found on the scale of God, lacking. And then this last part, Paris is the, this is a conjugation thing, don't even ask. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What a message. And just this, is, this isn't where I'm going with the message, and this isn't where I don't, I don't believe Scripture is going with this. But this message, isn't it true that it, that could also be given to each and every one of us right now? That our days are numbered. That we've been found wanting on the scale of God. That we are indebted. That we owe due to sin, due to shame, due to wrongdoing. We, we owe God. It, it's an unequal scale. And we've been weighed and we've been found wanting. And then the last thing is uh, our kingdom our wealth, our empire, our leadership, whatever it is that we've amassed in this world will eventually be split up, divided among those who survive us. The same message that he gave the king can also be given to each and every one of us. But here's the difference, 
and this is so important, what you have to hear, is it's not so much the message, because the message was also given to his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Not in the same way, but in a similar way. Go on, I've given you all of this. I've given you your kingdom. I've given you splendor. I've given you popularity. I've given you money and resources. I've given you all of this because you honored me. But as soon as you turned your back on me, I withdrew. And I pulled back. And your days are numbered. You've been weighed on the scale and found wanting. And your kingdom will soon be divided. How would you respond to Daniel if you're King Belshazzar? Let's find out. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command... Daniel was clothed in purple. That's royalty. It signifies royalty. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Awesome. And what happened to Belshazzar? You're all looking ahead. I'll just read it. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of of 62. How does he respond? He rewards them. Thank you for the message. That was a great interpretation. You nailed it. You got me. I've been weighed. I've been found wanting. But dude, great job delivering the message. I'm proud of you. In fact, here you go. Here's the gold chain. Bring some purple. Let's put purple on him. He is now the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And think about this from Daniel's perspective. God just said, I'm going to ruin you. Your kingdom's going to be taken from you. You've been found wanting. And so this guy just promotes Daniel. How long is the promotion going to last? Think about it. Your boss just promoted you, but you know your boss is going to be fired or eliminated in the next 12 hours. Do you hold a lot of stake or like, do you hold a lot of like excitement in this new position and this newfound wealth? No. Which is why Daniel said, just keep your stuff. Give your rewards to someone else. It says that very night... This kingdom that was besieged, they got in, they penetrated the walls, and they killed King Belshazzar. But I don't want us to miss here. This is just to help you track with me or like where we're going. It's easy to look at King Belshazzar in the situation and compare ourselves to him and go, okay, man, when, when God gives me a message or, or when I live this life or amass this kingdom, what am I supposed to do with it or what does he call us to do with this? That's not where we're going with this because we're sticking with Daniel. And Daniel, in this story, is not the star character. He's not the main guy. He's not the one that we're tracking with. Um, the king is. But Daniel, Daniel is used by God in a very strong and strategic and influential way. And this is kind of where we're tracking with the series. This is why we named it Against the Grain. Daniel is different than all of the rest. And God honors that. And he says, man, when you draw the resolve and when you stay close to me and when you follow me and you rely on me to provide for you, man, I'm just going to raise you up. But the kingdom around him and the world around him wants what Daniel has. That Daniel becomes this divine interpreter that's able to speak into culture, to speak into context, to speak into situations, to speak into leadership that brings wisdom, that brings clarity, and that brings interpretation of God's word and how it applies in their lives. 
And this is why it's so important. This is why I love this series. I just love it. Because when going against the grain or as followers of Jesus and as disciples of him, we are called to do the exact same thing. That regardless of our context, regardless of our family, regardless of our work, whatever it is, we are called by God, if you are a disciple of Jesus, to be the mouthpiece of God in situations, but not to just add your own or not just to say whatever you feel, but to pull out scripture and to say, this is what God's word says. If you notice, I, I just love this about Daniel. Daniel doesn't come in and condemn and point a finger and say, King Belshazzar, you fool, you're an idiot, you screwed up. If only you paid attention in school, if only you watched your dad. You know, it, it's not like this berating. All Daniel does, and it's kind of like this, I'm just going to open scripture. I'm just going to read it for what it says. And I'm going to allow scripture to do the convicting. I'm going to allow scripture to speak into the truth. I'm merely here as an interpreter to say this is what God's word says and this is what God's word means and this is what it means to live out my faith is that I'm the mouthpiece of God and sometimes we're called to speak in the difficult situations in which the message isn't positive. And sometimes we're called to speak in the situations of confusion and unknown and bring clarity you know, this is what God speaks in his word. And sometimes we're called to bring hope and to bring peace and to bring excitement and joy and go, this is what God's word says. That cancer doesn't have a final word. That division doesn't have to continue. That your worth is found not in what you do or what you look like or what you make, but in who God created you to be. That's why scripture and a knowledge of scripture and an understanding and a regular dive in deep scripture to go, God, just speak to me. Speak to my heart. Let me be like Daniel where I'm different than the, West, the rest of the world so that when I read, I understand you. And then when I'm proposed with a situation or an opportunity to speak into and to provide insight and to point people to you and your wisdom, that I open it up and I go, oh, man, this is just like my devotion the other day. What God's been speaking to me through his word. And let me just open it up and let me just point scripture to you. This is what Daniel understood. This is what Daniel did. And it was unbelievably effective. So what does that mean for us or our culture today? As I think about this, I'm not going to get political on you, okay? So I promise, put your seatbelt on, relax, chill out. But I want to bring up a statement or a slogan that was used in our last election. Without saying yes, no, there's no cheers, there's no clapping. I'll talk to you after if you do. So here's the thing, though. I just want to say this statement, and I want to speak to it of just my understanding or my hunch as to what it spoke to to a lot of people. So, in the last presidential election, Trump's slogan was, making America great again. And I only want to speak to the slogan. Have I made that clear? Here's what I think. I think in our culture, or in our society, a lot of disciples and a lot of Christians are missing what maybe they once held. Or are missing what they once had a nation that doesn't work on Sundays anymore, a nation where, where racism, and we, I, I get there's so much packed into this, but racism was a whole lot less of a deal. I say that carefully. 
because it was in different ways, but the way that it's used today and the way that it's exploded today and it's gotten violent again and it's gotten hurtful again and it's, it's really exploded and gotten out of whack. Um, the way that people treat, people treat the Bible, the way that schools and how schools led kids to their nation and when they said the pledge, they said it's under God and that we live under God. I believe that this statement that Trump used was so stinking strategic because it got in touch with people's emotions of a place that once was and a country that once was. And I think, and this is, I hope I'm being clear here, I think so many of us think back to a time in the past and culture when we felt like less of an exile that we felt like we belonged in, that we felt like we fit in. And as I watch TV today, or as I watch the news, and I read the articles, or I see the movie, you can see the progression of culture that is pushing farther and farther away from discipleship and from following Jesus. It's moving away. And I believe this slogan got in touch because a huge majority of evangelicals voted for Trump. And this, I'm just trying to speak to this. I think people went, they heard that statement, and they go, maybe this can get us back to the way it once was. Now, is that accurate? I am no analyst. I'm no politician. I am I'm making zero. Am I making zero statements here? Yes or no? Thank you. Okay. No political statements, no emails. But if they do, if you want to send me an email, send it to Brian. That'd be awesome. Okay. He's on vacation. We can spice it up a little bit. But it's so important because I think we can relate to Daniel a whole lot more than we realize. Because Daniel grew up in a great nation, in a nation that was so centered on God and his relationship with him. And a, a nation that, that in every aspect of life, we follow Jesus or we follow God and we have a relationship with him and so we do what he's called us to do. And so he grew up in this. And then Daniel's circumstances changed. And he found himself in a context and in a culture that wasn't his. In fact, it was a context and a culture and a society that opposed his relationship with God and actively worked against it, that it persecuted people for it. When Daniel came in, even Daniel's name was changed because Daniel's name in Hebrew talks about his relationship with God, and they changed it, and they said, Daniel, your new name is Belteshazzar. I can never say it. Belteshazzar. I'm not even going to try. He says, this is your new name because we serve the God of the Son. And so Bel was the son. Your new name now has to do with the sun god. Daniel's whole world changed and his whole world shifted and he found himself not fitting anymore. And I wonder if that's true for us that in today's culture, I'll just speak for me here, there are times or things that I see on the news or things that people say that I just go, I just don't fit here anymore. I so don't agree with that. That is so contrary to what I know or what I believe or what I know is true. And yet, here we are, just like Daniel, in exile in our own place. Maybe it's true for you at home. Maybe it's true in marriage. Maybe it's true in school. Maybe it's true at work. Maybe it's true in whatever context that you're in. Maybe you don't feel like the one that fits anymore because of your faith. That's okay. Daniel was in the exact same spot. And this is what's so cool, and this is the big implication here of the story, is that God is sovereign over all nations. That's why I had you say it earlier. God is sovereign. That despite 
despite the fact that the culture and the society of the Babylonians rejected God and rejected the Israelites and said, we don't have anything to do with that. This is our culture. This is our society. This is our way of life. God projected and showed and translated his sovereignty through his church. That's what we've been called to. So whatever it is that the context that you find yourself in, if you feel like in exile or you feel like you don't fit in or you feel like you're left out or you feel like you're overlooked because of your faith or because of your relationship with God or you feel dismissed, God has positioned you in a perfect place to use you, to reach the people around, to open up scripture and just to point people, say, here I am, I'm the translator. I'm not a condemner. I don't have to condemn you. I don't have to point the finger at you. I just, I get to open God's word and just get to say, this is the grace that God has for you. This is the message that God has for you. Um, recently, I, I've talked about Oman a couple times, um, but Oman, how many of you actually know where Oman is? Great. All of you people didn't listen to any of my other messages. Thank you for that. That was encouraging. Uh, Oman, it's in the Middle East. It's over, it's across the ocean from Iran. So it's not the best part of the world. In fact, it's pretty scary. Totally different culture. Um, Islam is like the 99.9% of Oman. But Oman's a very safe, it's kind of like this little haven in the midst of like a chaotic Middle East. And so when I was in Oman, I met a friend named Suleiman. And Brennan, if you guys want to come up too, that'd be perfect. So Suleiman um, is Muslim. He works for the Sultan, which is basically the king of Oman. And so our group of seminary students, people studying to be pastors and leaders of our church, um, Big C Church, studying, here we all, we're all over there. We're learning about Islam and developing relationships. And so Suleiman works for the government, was assigned to our group kind of to keep tabs on us to translate for us, to be there for us when we need him. But really, he's keeping an eye on us because we're foreigners, we're exiles in a land that's not our own. And so Suleiman and I hit it off. Our, we just had this fun friendship, you know, goof around or like I, I would share a room with him at night and it was just a fun opportunity to be like, hey, Suleiman, did you bring any change of clothes? And he just has like his robe, you know. No, I don't, I don't have any clothes. And I, I just whip out some shorts. I'm like, you want to be a Broncos fan today? I mean, you can use my shorts if you want. He's like, no, no, no shorts. And I'm like, hey, I'll leave, you know? And so I left to come back two minutes later. And he's like cuddled up in bed. And he's like, yeah, Broncos fan. <laughs> All right, I'm happy for you. And so we were joking around and Suleiman and I, but there was one night when my group, remember these are Christians, um, it saddened me a lot. But smoking and drinking in Muslim or in Islam is, it's a no-no. It's, very, it's bad, it's considered sin for them. And so here's my group um, sitting around a campfire with a couple Muslims smoking hookah. And this is like, this is, this is no, this is bad, this isn't good. I just distanced myself and I'm like, you know, I don't have to point a finger and say, you guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I backed off and I pulled back and Suleiman comes over. It's late at night. We're out in like the sandy rolling hills of the desert. It's beautiful. And Suleiman kind of nudges me and he says, how come you're not smoking? Why not with all your friends? And I was given an opportunity that I could see at the time to open the door of faith, maybe in a way that Suleiman would never experience. And I said, Suleiman, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And I, that just doesn't jive with kind of what I believe or how I honor my body. And, and I just choose not to. And, and 
I'm not going to condemn them. I'm not going to say they're bad or whatever, but it's just not for me. And he says, well, that's what, you know, that's what our, the Quran says too. I go, Tell me about it. And so we start talking and I just get the opportunity in a short 15, 20 minute conversation to say, has anybody ever talked to you about Jesus before? Like, do you even know who Jesus is? No, tell me, tell me more, tell me more. So I just open up scripture and I just share the gospel. Just go, this, this is who Jesus is and this is who he's called me to be and this is who he, he's called people to be and he, he sent Jesus to die in a relation, so that we can have a relationship with him. And he goes, huh, okay. And I wish there was a bow at the end, like, oh, Suleiman came to Christ and then he won, he won an election, became the king and now the whole country's taken over. I wish, right? Doesn't happen that way. But that's how it was left. But what I want to illustrate is this. We are merely interpreters. We merely get to take the words of God and interpret them to a world that doesn't understand them. And I only just wonder, I just ask for you, what's the context that God has called you to speak into? Where is it? Because all of a sudden, a place that we feel like we're left out or a place that we feel like exiles is now the place we call home as interpreters for God. God, we just thank you for today and just the opportunity to learn from you and to learn from the heart and the story of Daniel, to speak into situations that, that are difficult for us, that we don't feel like we're at home, we don't feel like we're together, we don't feel at peace, we feel endangered or we feel segregated or left out or we feel judged because of our relationship with you and I just pray for peace about these situations right now. In fact, I take it a step further, God, and I pray for this demographic of people here at the Center Church. I pray that you would so move through them that you would put them into situations of exile. I pray that you would move us all into situations where we no longer fit, where we look so different, that we're so against the grain that you use our relationship with you as a tool of reaching thousands. Now, this is what you've called us to do. You've called us into discipleship. And so we just pray that you would give us opportunities to lift this out, not as Bible scholars, not even as pastors, but just as interpreters of your word. That we would so love this book and that we would love you, that it would just exude out of us in every relationship that we have. Father, I just pray for opportunities to bring so that we can continue to share this message of life-saving grace. We love you pray this all in Jesus' name.